Chapter 1 of Conciliatory or Irenical Animadversions on the Controversies Agitated in Britain under the Unhappy Names of Antinomians and Neonomians by Herman Witsius. Translated by Thomas Bell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Concerning the Translation of Sin to Christ these things which use now to be chiefly controverted may be reduced to six principal heads for there is a dispute one concerning the way and manner of obtaining salvation two concerning the application of the purchased salvation three concerning justification four concerning the nature and genius of the covenant of grace five concerning the utility of holiness and good works six concerning the preaching of the law and the gospel under which general heads are comprehended many particular controversies to be distinctly explained. Concerning the purchase of salvation, these things are chiefly the subjects of inquiry. 1. Whether only the punishment due to the sins of the elect, or the very sins of the elect, both as to their stain and as to their guilt, are translated to Christ as surety. 2 whether Christ, on account of that translation, was and ought to be called as great a sinner as the elect themselves, yea, the greatest of all sinners. 3. Whether by the suretyship of Christ there be a certain exchange of persons between him and the elect. 4. Whether the translation of sins to Christ and his carrying them began in his crucifixion and terminated in his resurrection from the dead. 5 whether at that time, when he chiefly carried the sins of the elect, he was separated from God, was odious and abominable to him, and whether God did then abdicate his son, and again acknowledge him for his son when he raised him from the dead. 6. Whether Christ, by taking upon him the sins of the elect and satisfying divine justice, absolutely purchased eternal salvation for them, or this only that they could be saved, and in reality should if they believe. These questions I shall so prosecute in order that what I judge should be determined as to each may be explained in the clearest manner, and I choose to begin with the origin of salvation. The ever-blessed and the great God determined from eternity to render himself glorious and wonderful in delivering certain men, designed, as by name, from sin and death, and in their eternal salvation, salvation to be acquired by his only begotten Son, to whom he hath life in himself, he has also given to have life in himself and to be applied by the spirit of life since god is entirely independent in all the acts of his will and the supreme ruler of all things and persons and likewise the only author of all good and therefore of all faith virtue and holiness in men the favour of which things he most freely confers on whom he pleaseth doing all things according to the counsel of his will no faith no virtue nay no good at all could be foreknown in some men more than in others in consideration of which he should choose the one rather than the other but all the reason of this difference is to be placed in the absolute dominion of god and in the immense freedom of glorious grace concerning which he is accountable to none and since the counsel of jehovah standeth for ever since established in unsearchable wisdom by a god who knows not to repent it has the inconceivable power of omnipotence subservient to it to bend the minds of men whithersoever it will without any prejudice to rational liberty it is absolutely impossible that they should not be saved whom god hath appointed to obtain salvation 
that he might execute this purpose not only without diminishing or obscuring in the least any of his attributes but also in the clearest demonstration of them he most wisely determined in the same eternal decree to give for a saviour to those elect his only co-eternal and co-equal son who in the appointed time should assume the nature of man the form of a servant and represent them as a surety or undertaker for them should by the most exact obedience of his life and the meritorious suffering of his death satisfy the divine majesty and justice injured by the sins of men and victorious over all sufferings and death itself should be constituted the head of the elect in eternal glory further since the will of the son is the same with that of the father he voluntarily offered himself from eternity to undertake and perform that suretyship for the elect and in this consent of will there is some resemblance as of a mutual compact or covenant by virtue of this covenant god laid all the sins of all the elect upon his son whom he called jesus christ i say sins for so the scripture everywhere speaks isaiah fifty three six all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord made the iniquity of us all to rush upon him and again verse eleven and he shall bear their iniquities and again verse twelve and he bare the sin of many add one peter one twenty four who his own self bare our sins in his own body this was typically prefigured of old by the laying on of hands and of sins upon the beast destined to be a sacrifice instead of the sinner for it was the end of that ceremony to signify that sin was taken away from the men who offered and translated to the sacrifice hence the sacrifice itself was called sin and guilt nay the sacrifice was reckoned to be so polluted by the sin laid upon it that even they who were employed in the sacred ministry concerning it were defiled by touching it for so it happened not only to him who led the peculiar goat into the wilderness leviticus sixteen twenty six but also to those who attended the red heifer and the goats burnt without the camp numbers nineteen seven and eight leviticus sixteen twenty eight so the priests who feasted on such sacrifices were reckoned to bear the iniquity of the congregation because they converted part of their substance into their own there is no doubt but these things should be referred to christ jesus of whom it is said isaiah fifty three ten if his soul shall make itself to be sin or the speech being directed to god if thou lord shalt make his soul to be sin to the same purpose paul two corinthians five twenty one god made him who had not known sin to be sin for us that is as the innocent victim without spot and blemish became sin and mere guilt by a vicarious substitution when god who was to be satisfied pleased that the substitution should take place so also god substituted christ most holy in himself and free from all personal sin in the place of the offenders and made him sin that is a sacrifice for sin that he might truly bear sin and satisfy for it as the sacrifice did in a typical manner nay god so refers the sin of the elect to christ's account that however remote from him yet they are called his sins for thus he himself speaks of the matter psalm sixty nine four and five that which i took not away i will restore o god thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee i suppose that this psalm contains a prayer of christ the lord which appears from the quotation of its various parts in the new testament he complains of his sufferings and of the insolence of his most unjust enemies 
and protests that he had not brought this calamity upon himself by his own fault, but that he had paid what he had not taken away, which robbery, however, he immediately calls his sin, because he sustained the character of surety. As if he should say, It is true, my God, that I have come under guilt, and am made a curse, but thou knowest all the sins, even to the smallest faults for which I satisfy, and that in all these sins, and in all these follies which I call mine in respect of suretyship, none of them is my own personal offence, by which I violated thy right, that I should restore what I had taken away." In like manner Paul teaches that in Psalm 40 Christ is introduced as speaking. Now the person whose speech that psalm exhibits thus begins in the twelfth verse, Mine iniquities take hold upon me, so that I am not able to look up. Further, this imputation of our sins to Christ is to be understood, that by it no prejudice is done either to the truth of the divine judgment, or to Christ's untainted holiness. For God does not so impute our sins to him as to judge that he hath committed what we have done, that he was made drunk when Noah quenched himself with wine, committed incest with Lot or adultery with David, which thought is so far inconsistent with all reason that I can scarcely believe it could ever enter the mind of any man of sense, much less of a Christian or one who fears God. We know that every judgment of God is according to truth. Now it is most false that Christ committed what was committed by the elect neither are our sins ever so reckoned to be his but that he always remains holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners however since by virtue of that covenant of which i spake above christ as well by his own will as by that of the father became the surety of the elect and in the judgment of god represents and sustains their person their sins are so far imputed to him and said to be his by imputation one that he is no less bound to pay than if he himself which god forbid had perpetrated them in his own person when god judgeth so he judgeth according to truth and that judgment is found on the eternal and most holy will of the father and the son further in sin the stain and the guilt are to be distinctly considered how the sins of the elect are imputed to christ in respect of guilt is if i am not mistaken easily understood from what has already been said nay i think it also obvious that their sins are by no means imputed to him as to their stain in that sense that by that imputation he is anyhow physically polluted or rather morally if you will at least inherently but so far that he is so treated by god as if he occupied the place and represented the person of the filthy and the unclean and on that account his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men isaiah fifty three fourteen in which sense Gregory of Nyssa said well that Christ bore the stain of our sins. Both may be said in a sound sense, viz. that our sins, as many of us are elect, are ours, not Christ's, and that the same sins are Christ's, and no more ours. They are ours because committed by us, and because by them we brought upon ourselves the guilt of eternal death, and thus far they will remain ours forever, that is, it will be always true that we committed them, and in so doing deserved the wrath of God. For what is done can never become undone, and thus they are not Christ's, because he did not commit them, neither did he contract any personal guilt. Neither could they become his sins, because the nature of things does not suffer that the same numerical act which was committed by us should be done by Christ. But the sins which we committed became Christ's when imputed to him as surety, and he, on account of his suretyship, took them upon him, that in the most free and holy manner he might satisfy for them, and they ceased to be ours. 
inasmuch as for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, we neither ought nor can in the judgment of God be brought to condemnation or satisfaction in our own person on their account. And these things seem so evident to me that there can be no difference as to the matter itself among the orthodox. Since they are so, I know not why some should incline rather to say that the punishment or guilt of our sins were translated to Christ than the sins themselves as to their guilt. Since the last is said by Scripture itself, a wish to soften its most pure, most wise, and most emphatic phrases by I know not what smoother ones of our own, is the part of a mind delicate to a fault, and not duly esteeming the wisdom of sacred scripture. End of chapter 1